0: Right there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at IntersupportRent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So... If you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire with sport and to use the code SkiPodcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 95 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be finding out about the UK's largest chalet company, probably in brackets, and talking Latanya with the expert, plus I'll be reporting on my trip to Chamonix last week, as well as talking to the man who skied every single day for a year. Now firstly, I have to make an apology. If you listened to episode 93 more than a week to 10 days ago, you might have found a little continuity error in there really, really annoying. It's now been corrected. Uh, There are 146 episodes. I don't think it happens very often. Uh, You may know, listener, I'm the researcher, presenter, editor, and publisher. But if you ever happen to hear any mistakes in the podcast, then please do let me know. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for their continued support. You may know that they're at the Chelsea Flower Show uh, this week, where they have a Swiss sanctuary, especially designed by Lily Gom, and that is open until this weekend if you want to go along and see some of the amazing flora there. And finally, just before we start, I'd like to congratulate Dave and Mandy Riding, who got married last week after a a very long, delayed wedding. Probably comes at a close second to his World Cup win uh, earlier this year in the highlights of his life. My name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest today. Uh, Firstly, I'm delighted to welcome Diane Palumbo, who is Sales and Marketing Director at Ski World. Hi, Diane. How are you? Hi.
1: Hi, Ian. Uh, Very well and pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: We also, have Toffa, who is the founder of latania.co.uk hi Toffa, how are you going yeah all good thanks yeah yeah I'm missing, uh, interested to be on this podcast yeah excellent and regular guest al morgan from kitinfo.com. how are you going al
2: i am good thank you ian and thank you once again
0: no worries well let's start uh, i'm not going to ask al because we know the answer to that but let's start by asking my guests when they skied or snowboarded last diane where when was that for you
1: uh, outdoors in um, March.
0: Brilliant that's always good you know for so many of these podcasts we've been asking people when the last getting it was like gaps of two years and things like this and now it's really nice that it's only like a <laughs> you know a month or two ago and, and how was that holiday in outdoors?
1: Deeply deeply enjoyable and satisfying after what's happened to all of us for two reasons three number one I went by train so I felt incredibly virtuous and <laughs> There's a long story about our efforts to get more trains for holidaymakers, but that would be a separate podcast, I think. Uh, number two, the joy, the sheer joy of spending time with family and friends after all we've been through made it even more resonant. And to hear that click of your ski boots mm-hmm. into your skis is second, isn't it, it? Came first above the sound of my coffee machine. <laughs> it, it, I, you know, I can't swear on air but I realized how much I'd fucking well missed it. <laughs> I, I Honestly, you you think you cope with being locked in your home, the stress of work. We had to repatriate thousands of people when it first hit, then the horror that we've all been through and you cope and you cope with not skiing, you know, come on guys. You know, it is a pleasure. It's a luxury. We're blessed to be able to do it. That first, feeling of the snow under my skis i realized why i've been so addicted to it all my life and it's not relented at all
0: that is brilliant to hear and i think we all felt like that when we uh, had that opportunity to get on the uh slopes again what about you toffer uh i'm guessing your last skiing was in latania was it <laughs>
3: uh, it wasn't actually um my last day of the season was over in team um i got invited to the ski lodge in the day out um the day after they closed, or rather the day after they finished cleaning. And then um, we got a coach on up to teams for the day. Yeah, it's pretty good skiing, actually. Um, you know, at the 20th of April, I think it was. And then we were all, all back in the coach after some outbreak and down to Bourg-Saint-Marie's for uh, Big Chinese. So, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. A day out. Yeah.
0: That sounds like a, a, a great day out. And I know you got uh, quite a few days in uh, last season. But we'll talk about Latanya a little bit more. I was actually out in Chamonix last week. There was snow, but there was uh, no skiing. Although I did do a bit of research recently for one of my clients' Ski Weekend about summer skiing in Chamonix, and they did used to have it. uh, I'm not sure if you know this. Up on the Agui de Midi, there used to be a few drag lifts up there. There's always enough snow to ski up there. People still ski up there. I mean, I saw people skiing while I was at the Agui de Midi, people going ski touring, uh, etc. But it's not a very safe environment in summer when the snow bridges on the glacier get thinner and thinner. And in the end, unfortunately, they, one of the key decisions that led to them stopping offering uh, summer skiing, which is in the early 90s, I think, was when a snow groomer fell into a cravats. Uh And at that point, they just decided no, this isn't really going to work anymore. So there was no skiing there. But I was hiking on the trails. It was exceptionally warm. It was 29 degrees oh in the resort goodness. at 1,000 metres on Saturday which is super warm. And France is actually on course for its uh, warmest uh, May ever, I believe. But so good to be out there in Chamonix again. You know, I really love uh, Chamonix in the summer and uh, regular listeners will know actually the last time I was there was when I was taking part in the UTMB. So it was quite special to be back there again. Like you, Diane, I also went there uh, by train there and back bit of a complicated uh, journey to to get to uh, Chamonix. involved a couple more changes than normal. But what I really, really enjoyed about this particular trip was I didn't have to wear a mask at all (laughs) at any point during the whole journey. And it was such a joy. made so much difference in that feeling of normality, you know, going skiing and everything like that, but the travelling back and forth and having to do that was just was just really good. So I had a brilliant time uh, out there and while I was there I actually met up with uh, Claire Bernay from the tourist office who's been on the uh, podcast before. I'll put a link in the show notes to her previous appearance. I'm here with uh, Claire Bernay from the Chamonix uh, tourist office. Hi Claire, how are you going? Hi, and
4: I'm fine, thank
0: you. Excellent. Well, it's it's so good to be back in Chamonix again. The last time I was here was for the UTMB, which was an extremely emotional time for me. And in fact this morning when my run I came along that little bit to the finish, so it really brought it home. But it's it's more about a kind of trail running here in, in summer, isn't it? There's a lot going on.
4: Yeah, definitely. Well, Chamonix has the sort of nomination of... Um valley trail um, trail runner valley and um, we have a lot of dedicated um, itineraries for trail runners Uh, so from easy trails to uh, more steep uh, mountain paths there's something for everybody yeah
0: this year though i'm planning to do a bit more hiking let's say because Mm. the lifts uh, or a a number of the lifts are still open you know you can go the agri de midi is is one of the most popular lifts in the world?
4: Yeah, absolutely, the Aiguille du Midi, but um, the Aiguille du Midi goes up to 12,000 feet, so you're not necessarily going to hike up there unless you're with a high-mountain guide. But from the Plan de l'Aiguille, which is the mid-station, there's a fabulous uh, trail across to the Montant, vert de Glace, um, which takes about two hours, and that's a very popular one. But uh, definitely throughout the valley, the lifts are running, so uh, you can get a walk to all the um, mountain uh, hiking areas. It means you can get up to an elevation of about 6,000 feet which, which uh, helps you set you off on um, some really uh, exciting trails and we have uh, 400 kilometers of uh, marked trails in the Chamonix Valley so there's plenty to be going on with.
0: Right, well I'm I'm going to be trying uh, a few of them and I noticed during my run this morning it might be a bit windy today but you get a lot of paraponters here as well don't you?
4: Yeah absolutely, paraponting is a very popular activity um, and uh, there are a lot of paraponting schools so people who want to come try tandem paragliding it's uh, easy enough to do. In winter as well we yeah. Uh, as, as long as the conditions are good, but you need a warm pair of gloves if you do it in winter.
0: I've done I've done um, a tandem parapont uh, before, and quite frankly, I found it a bit terrifying. <laughs> it's not really my sort of thing. You know, as long as I didn't look down, yeah, it was fine.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't need to suffer from vertigo if you're paragliding. Uh,
0: have you tried it at
4: all? Uh, yeah, I paraglided. Um, I started paragliding in 1986. That was the beginning. Okay. Yeah, um, and since then the the um, well the whole sport has evolved a lot. When I flew, there were no rules or regulations. A lot of people landing in trees and, uh, <laughs> uh, and on uh, cranes and uh, uh, and hotel roofs. It was quite an exciting time. But it, it's much. Uh, it, it, there, there are a lot of schools now that are really uh, very very um, committed to mountain safety, and so it's a, a safer sport. There are very. Few
0: it's so nice to be here. When I came out on the train uh, yesterday, for the first time in two years, I didn't have to wear a mask, which was great. I feel like we've passed all of that. I wondered at how, as a resort, last winter went for you, uh, you know, overall in terms of the international market.
4: Yeah, we had an excellent winter. We still had more French clients than uh, in a normal winter season. Normally, we're 50% uh, foreign visitors, 50% uh, French. Uh, so the proportion of French visitors was still, still higher, but um, the, the British visitors were back, and we were delighted to uh, to hear their voices in the streets of Chamonix for sure. And um, it was a good season.
0: It's great to have that international clientele back. You had a really good offer last season as well, which probably made a, a bit of difference. Where you were offering free uh, ski lessons to people if they came in certain dates.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Outside of the uh, French. Uh, school holidays, uh, ski lessons were free, which people couldn't quite believe was true, but it was If, as long as you stayed a minimum of uh, three nights in the Chamonix Valley um, then uh, you could uh, benefit from free ski lessons, so if you are here three nights you could have three days of free ski lessons um, and that included cross-country skiing, uh, downhill, off-piste skiing, ski touring, so it was, a, it was a really attractive offer and I think it, it um, did um, encourage people to choose Chamonix as, a, as their holiday destination.
0: As you know Claire, I've been coming here for, uh, for many years and I'm a huge fan of uh, Chamonix. I'm certainly going to be coming back I will report on the podcast elsewhere about how my hike and the lifts went. But otherwise, thanks very much and, and great to see you again. Yeah,
4: it's a pleasure. It's always great to see you too.
0: So Chamonix in summer, is actually one of those few resorts where it's actually busier in summer than it is in winter. So many people come to go on Montembeur and go up the to Midi. I actually worked there in the summer in 1996. Uh, when I was a uh, rep for Crystal Holidays and uh, you'd hear in the background you know lots of people going oh yeah I went up Mont Blanc today which means they went up the Agui de Midi got, got, got quite close to Mont Blanc but people do go uh you know up Mont Blanc uh, etc and um, Al you mentioned you've been out to Chamonix in the summer a few times before
2: yeah uh, I, I just it's absolutely fantastic it's such a hub of activity so if you're going to go out and go climbing or I've walked around Mont Blanc a few times through Italy and Switzerland um yeah i absolutely love it in this and i've been there more in the summer than i have in the winter
0: yeah i mean i've probably well i have been there more in the summer because i've done a lot of uh, trail running uh, uh, over there as well and mountaineering you mentioned i mean when you go to the Anguilla midi and uh, listen if you if you've never been it costs quite a lot of money to get up there but i highly uh, recommend it and you know you could easily spend two hours or more up there, I think, taking in all the different views and watching people. When I went through the ice tunnel that takes you to the Arette to go down to the Valais Blanche, where people ski the Valais Blanche. And when I got there, there was a photo shoot going on. And there was some guy who was just looking like he was about to ski down the, what would it be, the north face down towards uh, Chamonix. And I asked who he was, and I, I looked it up, and he's a uh, free skier called Vivian Bruchet. You ever heard of him well i googled him and he's a pretty amazing uh, guy and he was doing a photo shoot there were other people who were ski touring other people who were you know doing mountaineering it's it's incredibly uh, active there diane i think you told me in the green room you've been there before but a few years back
1: oh god yeah probably the glacier is a lot bigger that's how long ago it was the last time i went um and it was a previous job and i was repping a group and i was astounded at the summer beauty of the mountains, having only, only ever experienced mountains in the winter. And there's a few places where I'm kind of thinking years to come, I will hit in in the summer. And I think Chamonix has to be one of them because you're right. It's so vibrant. It's so vibrant.
0: Well, I, I love uh, the mountains in the summer, as I as I do in winter as well. And there is so much that you can do there. But Chamonix is quite an exciting place. And even though I was there in May when it is really quite quiet in the town. You know, quite a lot of the shops weren't open. Some of the restaurants and bars weren't open either. But it's still relatively busy. If you go there in August when the UTMB is on, it is really, really, truly busy. And that is one of the things they have to deal with. Toffer, I think you said when you've been to Chamonix in summer, it's been to maybe just a drive through it to get through to Switzerland perhaps? I know the first time I ever went to the Alps, I
3: think it was in 1999 in the summer, and I was actually looking at buying an apartment. And I I wasn't really decided if I was going to buy one, but it was something I was going to have a look at. I just remember that drive up in the mountains in the morning. And it was a beautiful morning, and it's been a bit of fresh snow on the summer. And then that was it. I was buying the apartment, it was just going to be which one, you know? And it really, really changed the whole whole world for me, being out there in the summer, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, Chamonix is so dramatic because it, a thousand meters, the, uh, the, the town, not really a, a village. And then going up to 3,800 on an incredibly steep incline to the Ag- Agui de Midi and on the other side to Brevon. And it's a very different perspective that you don't get in most of the other uh, French ski resorts. So, so you know, listener, I've posted a few videos on the uh, Skipedia YouTube uh, channel. If you'd like to find out a little bit more, you can uh, have a look there. Now, Diane, I'd like to turn to you, if that's OK. You are sales and marketing director at Ski World. There have been a lot of changes in the uh, world of chalet holidays uh, in recent years and in the time that you've been there. I, I think that uh, Ski World is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I've just signed off the logo. You know, <laughs> Every 10 years, you signed off a celebratory logo, but correct. Yeah.
0: Well, 40 years in business is a tremendous achievement, particularly through all the challenges that the travel industry has had. And I have a feeling, I'm not 100% sure of this because it involves even more research than my researcher has time for. I think probably Ski World is the largest chalet company in the UK now with, you know, Crystal Holidays and England scaling back massively. When did you join the company?
1: 2000. No, no, I'm lying. <laughs> it was 1999 because in 1999 we were making preparations for this is going to be for older listeners Listeners, the millennium bug
0: so that is quite a long time ago you've been with the company a long time in all of that time yeah they've been i mentioned the amount of challenges and lots of travel companies have have not made it uh, over uh, that length of time more recent challenges There have been so many of them. In the early years, it's really a matter of uh, the two variables, uh, I guess, that you don't have any control over, the snow and the exchange rate. You know, that is something that, you know, chalet companies and travel companies have to deal with the whole time. I mean, how there must have been some occasions where there were some massive variations there that caused you difficulties.
1: Yes, but they kind now looking back on them, they kind of feel like the normal things that you deal with when running a business whether it be small, SME or large. So I think we've always taken a very financially prudent approach. And when we have made money, because you're faced sometimes with crises and you have to repatriate people, you've got to have reserves in place. And then it became more sensible to use money that we did make to buy our own offices, to give us an an atoll stability. and the final thing was to kind of invest in an it infrastructure actually i'm saying resources because your it infrastructure is worthless if you haven't got the skilled teams to use it so i think even exchange rate and variable snow those measures really help being
0: prudent sounds like a you know a very good way of uh, you know approaching these things i think i've seen you know a lot of companies just try to expand far too quickly and overcommit themselves over the time. But those are sort of challenges that are kind of out of your control, but seem reasonable, perhaps. Perhaps the biggest challenge in most recent years has been Brexit. And I know that you're very involved in an organisation called Seasonal Businesses in Travel. And we've previously had Charlie Owen talking about that on the show. Uh, you know, how do, do you want to explain a little bit more about ESPIT uh, and you know your role in it?
1: It started with obviously the referendum, the result of the referendum in twenty sixteen, where what we felt was really the value of frictionless movement of people and resources hadn't had enough emphasis during that period, and what we could see ahead was things like us buying our uniform in the UK, which in the early days we were trying to always buy from a UK-based manufacturer. We then had to buy from a UK-based retailer who had it made in the Far East, but it was still money coming from the UK. It cost us nothing to put that on one of our vans over to our staff, and we, had, we could quality control. We could see all of that disappearing, let alone the big one of... Myself, the MD, the entire management team of Ski World are graduates of seasonal, business, of seasonal work. You're, you've been at the coalface. And also, doing a season made us addicted skiers for the rest of our lives. Example, how we opened this, this conversation. So the loss of all of that precipitated a lot of competitors coming together around a table and saying, unless we speak with one voice... We're really not going to be able to get the information to government about the size of our contribution to the economy and what damage that could do. And that was the bit that was absent, that ABTA does produce figures that tells us that £39 billion is spent in the UK prior to international travel. That figure dates from 2019 that had been growing consistently from the previous 10 years. And that's expenditure in the UK that goes into the Exchequer. But nobody had sectioned off the winter sports industry to say, you know, it, we probably contribute about £1.9 collectively to the Exchequer.
0: That is a huge amount of uh, money. And that I am aware that part of the lobbying of uh, ESPIT has been trying to make uh, the government and you know aware of the value of the industry it's interesting that the different elements of it talking about the amount of revenue generated for uk uh, businesses but it's that for me what you mentioned there the unquantifiable aspect of it of the um experience and enthusiasm if you talk about travel industry the directors at uh at ski world had done ski seasons i did a ski season and i could go on to list a huge number of people who've worked ski seasons, who have ended up creating uh, businesses and are working in senior positions within the travel industry, who've built up that experience from working in the first case, dealing with customers face-to-face right. and understanding what customers need and then being able to apply that to create a product that they are then going to want uh, uh, after all. I'm, I'm not entirely persuaded necessarily that people doing ski seasons contribute to the overall growth of the ski industry, because it feels like the numbers are relatively small compared to the numbers of overall skiers. But you know, the work that Esbit has been doing, I like the idea of competitors coming together. You've put a value on what the cost of uh, or the value of the industry is. But what other work have you been doing then to try and smooth the path for ski companies to continue in, in Europe?
1: Well. Interestingly, and I, you know, I hear what you're saying about the season airs, but we did a piece of research a few years ago, and at our peak, we were employing 460 young people aged between sort of 18 and 25. Interestingly, the average age had been going up. And one, well, more than one year, several years, men outnumber women, 57% of our chalet hosts were, were men. And it, it was hovering around that for quite a few years, we did a piece of research. Uh, a few years afterwards, to try and find out how many of them uh, actually were introduced to skiing from their ski seasons and continued to ski, the figure was something in the thirty percent, so those were people who'd never skied before who decided to do a ski season and then said, "I keep going regularly that's different from the people who by the age of eighteen had already been skiing and were going to kind of carry on doing it so I, I, we still keep having it and I can track it. Customers who book with us, who've done a season with us, who are entitled to a special discount. And of course I can find that on the reservation system. <laughs> so we can see every year how many people come back with us. Anyway, back to your question. Um, the other piece of work we've been doing is working very, very more closely than I could have ever envisaged with authorities in Paris, Avignon, Savoie, Haute-Savoie, Isère, to obtain a smooth system as smooth as it can be of getting work visas. It is still onerous, complex, exhausting, can be refused, but I would never have envisaged the level of cooperation that we've had from our partners in France.
0: So just to clarify, then, I mean, the, the uh, immediate impression upon uh, Brexit was that freedom of movement was going to end. And if you're British, you are no longer going to be able to uh, do a ski season, because I think initially there was a limit of 90 days or something like that for a working this visa. But you found a solution that allows you to employ staff for the whole season?
1: No. That, what you have just said is correct. We, we have, fact, the sky is blue, trees are green. We have lost the right to work in France and to stay any longer working than 90 days. So we have to go through an application process which involves having a French company. The French company is the employer, so these staff are on a French payroll. All of those staff's social contributions now go to France and not the UK. We have to apply for a work permit and prove that that task cannot be undertaken by a French person then we're issued with a work permit, at which point we have to obtain a long stay visa. The passport has to be stamped, there has to be a medical, and if you go past that or try and do several years, you need another piece of documentation.
0: It's very easy, I think, for everybody to understand listening to that. It's a lot more complicated. There are evidently costs, working within the ski industry and i've worked for different tour operators you know i'm aware that the margins are quite low so this must be squeezing the margins even more and obviously it's one of the reasons why there are fewer chalets fewer chalet staff uh, in the out i mean have prices of holidays gone up to compensate for that
1: yes We, we predicted it in in all the publications and the lobbying we said to government and we said two things are going to happen and this was before COVID. We said holiday costs will increase, which will shrink the market because margins are already pretty waffer thin, actually. Um, and secondly, it's going to restrict supply. Because not all people are going to undertake all of that. And certainly any companies that employ staff illegally risk that member of staff being banned for Europe for life. Is that really a risk that you want to take with the young person that you're employing? I think it's a real dereliction of duty if you do that, let alone the directors being fined. So uh, we said it's going to restrict supply. Well, economics tells us that a restriction in supply also puts prices up, and that is going to restrict the contribution of the UK holiday industry, and certainly this sector, to the UK economy. So find a way of instigating a youth visa, a youth mobility visa. And
0: that's what you're continuing to to lobby for, because we obviously do have various areas within the freedom of movement where, for example, the UK are uh, allowing a certain number of people to come in to do fruit picking, for example, I think is one of them where we have a shortage in the UK. We've always relied on people from the EU and therefore those restrictions don't apply. Do you think there's any feasibility that that might apply in reverse for young British people to go and work in ski resorts?
1: Well, even for fruit pickers, those documentations and that paperwork still has to be gone through. And all the government is saying is we're going to allow a larger number in. And the same is true in Austria. And in France, they've been incredibly cooperative and done something the British government has not done, which they have not put a limit. They've said it's on the basis of application, whereas in Austria, which is why our programme in Austria was literally decimated, there was a limit to the number of visas, which is done on a regional level.
0: Um, has it changed your uh, attitude towards recruitment? Because you know, back in the in the day when I was doing natives, we did lots of recruitment for uh, different tour operators, and obviously we are mainly focusing on British people. But if you can employ people with an EU passport, then it's going to make it a lot more straightforward. Do you, have you tried to target people from Ireland, for example, or the the Nordic Holland. nations?
1: Yes, of course. You know, as an employer, uh, you know, I've got very split feelings. As you said, all of us are graduates of the School of seasonaires, And I feel so strongly about giving the opportunities to travel and work abroad to young British people, the opportunities that we all benefited from. You know, I get emotional when I think about that restriction, the effect on the opportunities for young people. But I also have to look at what is good for the business and keeps holiday prices the best value we can. And that has meant employing and prioritising people with an EU passport.
0: Certainly when I spoke to my kids and I said to them after Brexit, you know, one of the biggest influences or one of the biggest issues here is that it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to do a ski season, which they both would like to do. Then that kind of helped, uh, you know, it's a few years ago and they're a bit younger, but helped them to understand the significance of that decision. I hope your situation at Ski World continues to progress and the work that you do with Sbet. Now, hopefully there's some continued progress there and we're able to maintain the chalet holiday because, you know, I, I am not going to defend the chalet holiday at all costs, but it certainly is um, a, a British tradition. I know there are other countries, you know, some countries Dutch uh, offer it as well. But yeah, I think the chalet holiday really is part of uh, skiing's history. And they, I, I love the social aspects to it when you get a, a, a mixed group, but also when you have a full group. You know, when I go on holiday with our groups we've been staying in apartments recently with several different families so you're sort of on holiday together but you're still apart if you could be all on holiday in the same place then it is so much better i think
1: i agree and one of the hysterical things is a very close friend of mine is french and lives in paris and she often says i do not understand you british you go on holiday in groups you go all together (laughs) and then you play we do not do this in France. I sound more Italian because I've just spent time with my family. But anyway, <laughs> um, it, that it's a phenomena um, that is really—it's uh, a British characteristic. We go on holiday in groups to play.
0: Long may it continue is what I say. Thank you very much, uh, Adam, for that insight, and uh, wish you all the best for your fortieth celebrations. Look forward to seeing that logo <laughs> in due course. <laughs> Now, I'm going to move on to you, uh, Toffa, just now. Interestingly, 1999 was clearly a very significant year for the ski industry. Diane joined Ski World. I started uh, uh, Natives around that time. And Toffa, I think that was the year that you started Latania.co.uk as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah,
3: that's right. Um, well, well, I was out for that season, yeah. I hardly had a day off for the previous year because of the Millennium book because I worked in the IT industry. But uh, I, I first got into Latania in the mid-90s. On one of those crystal super deals where you, you don't find out where you are actually staying until you get on the coach. Brilliant. And um, <laughs> I remember I was on the coach and uh you were promised it was going to be one of the big ski areas and he said oh you're staying with Tanya and then randomly I think um I went on a shower holiday and right until the day before I thought we were going to Mirabel, and then we were driving out and um we got the address and of course it was Latanya again and then so it was it was just sort of almost faded there. Uh, I ended up sort of falling in love with here and, and going there regularly. And as I say, I was out for that season in 99 and uh, I had flu between Christmas and New Year and ended up just messing about uh, with the website and we, we sort of created it overnight, really.
0: I, 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 that sounds very casual. I think you're being uh, very modest there because I don't think anyone ever creates a, a website overnight. I mean, I know you work in uh, in IT, but there's a big difference between being a fan of a, a resort. And going there, I mean, what led you to decide, oh, well, I think there should be a website, or I'm going to create a website?
3: I think it, it, it was weird, because I, I, we are doing some projects at work, and so we, so we sort of had access to the internet. You know, I mean, it was all dial-up modems then, and of course it was before any social media, so just taking photos of people, and being able to put them on the internet, and people could see them, and go, wow, this is great. Um, and it became sort of message board as well, so it was... As I would say, before, on social media it wasn't where everybody keeping in contact, and especially after the season as well, where so many seasoners seemed to end up in London, um, it just became a sort of place where everyone could meet up, you
0: know. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you're right that uh, it's hard. Uh, some listeners, uh, as I mentioned before, might found, find it difficult to imagine an era before social media. You know, the internet was very nascent then. I think you had a real first mover advantage there because you set up that website possibly before ever there was an official website for Latanya? Because if you Google Latanya, it's going to be very easy for listeners to find latanya.co.uk because it comes out top in almost every single search for Latanya. Did the tourist office have their own website at the time?
3: They did, but it was a real sort of static uh, site. That they didn't really update at all. It was just sort of the, the general information site um, with the brochures on. Because That was latanya.com. But interestingly, in the last, Few years, the this merger with Courchevel, and so the just takes you to the Courchevel website. I guess it's, it's it's a lot flasher than Latonia.com.uk. It's it's cleverer and um, graphics and all that. But the the information is it tends to be for the whole season rather than being constantly updated. And you know, our stupid snow reports and videos and um, just what's on locally in the, in the small bars and restaurants and things.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't underrate your uh, your steepest snow reports. The snow reports, the video snow reports that uh, a feature Tim Wall, who anyone who's ever been to the ski lodge in Latania will know, he's a natural in front of the camera. And those snow reports are, are really good. But just back to you know Latania. I mean, was there ever a point where they said to you? oh, well, um, you know, would you mind, uh, you know, not doing that website or getting off that domain or anything like that? Did you always have cordial relations with the uh, with the official resort?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, there's always been that small tourist office in La Tanya and, yeah, we've got an excellent relationship with them. And in, 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 in actual fact, even now it's part of Courchevel, it's probably actually closer because they don't have the influence on the, the main Courchevel site. So they, they publish things on the tiny to UK to get out there, you know.
0: And what's your view on that then? Is Latania part of Courcheval? Would you ever accept that or are you more like a sort of Basque Catalan separatist?
3: Well, that's a good uh, comparison, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it's really hard to judge, really. I mean, there has been a lot of investment in in the beginners' infrastructure, two new lifts, and obviously the World Cup is just above Latania, you know, um, the new Peace Champ Le Prague, so all that area. So there is money coming in, but it Does sometimes feel like we are the sort of poor relation, you know. I mean, the yeah, I think you'll remember your hotel Telemark that is just staff accommodation for one hotel in 1850, which is just incredible to think a hotel it wasn't the time just staff accommodation, you know.
0: That I mean, that is amazing. There have been so many changes, uh, uh, over the years since you've been involved since 99. I mean, in fact, Diane, I might uh, bring you back in at this point. You know, I remember uh, when I was. Working seasons, and also when we were doing natives and doing parties, you know, in Corshaw, 1850, there used to be so many staff. I mean, I think there were three uh, Ski World Club hotels in Corshaw, 1850. And I think now they've all been converted to upmarket uh, restaurants or hotels or something like that.
1: Yeah, we used to have a bar, which, funny enough, one night, Roman Abramovich, dirty name these days, uh, called to say how much money did we want for him to have the bar to himself for the whole evening because there was a Chelsea match on. And, uh, yeah, I thought very rapidly, and the only figure I could remember was the total turnover of the bar for a year. And I gave it to him, and he said yes on the spot.
0: Oh. <laughs> wow, that is amazing. That is it was amazing. No small
1: bar, though. It was like a narrow corridor with yeah. you know, a mural painted on the wall, and it was a kind of season airs bar. Was that the Isba? Uh, no, it was actually off the, of the Verge en Soleil, which was next to the but well, one building in between. Well, remembered.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I did actually work a season in Courchevel. And, you know, at that time, you could one of our après activities that we offered to guests was a pub crawl in Courchevel 1850. And, you know, unless you've got very, very deep pockets, there's absolutely absolutely no way that you could do that now. We used to be able to go from one bar to the other uh, within a couple of hundred meters of each other. And Thank
1: you for your custom, Ian. (laughs) (laughs)
0: As as you say, Toffer, you know, now there's very few, you know, we often have Alex Irwin uh, from 150 Days of Winter on the podcast. You know, the situation from when he was first there and when you were first doing it in Korshville 1850 to now is such that, as you're telling me, I didn't even realise that the telemark uh, is now just staff accommodation and all the staff have uh, have moved down. But it's interesting in Latanya, there is, it always has struck me a real community there that makes it special, perhaps because of the, the compressed nature of the resort. It's all focused around that little kind of snow front area where there's, you know, a few bars and the ski lodge for British people, uh, you know, really is such a focus, isn't
3: it? Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's um it was always about the about the right size, really. It has expanded in, in recent times, but it's mainly just chalets rather than little apartment blocks. So there's always been a, a a number of people where you, you know there's sort of a core group and there's so many seasonaires through season after season you know that, that it keeps a continuity going as uh as people and friends and i think one of the things you mentioned about the season airs, um that sort of coaches, you know those those friends from that first season i'm still massively in touch with you know and it really is a thing about you know you, you, you do a season but you keep those friends for the rest of your life if you want to or not nowadays.
0: Now, well, while that also relates to what Diane was saying, I think you know something that you get out of doing seasons is that incredibly close connection that you get with people when you spend that really intense period of time. And, and I know that you are not working in IT anymore. I don't think, Topher. How many how many days do you think you spent in Latania this uh, winter? Um, it better be less than ninety. Um, <laughs> 89 days in Courchevel <laughs> uh, this winter right <laughs> yeah something like that yeah yeah yeah. I mean that, that's that,
3: you know going on about that uh, uh, quite a few of the older ski buns, they ended up getting the longer stay visas so they can stay 90 days in, in France and not affect the rest of their summer holidays in the Schengen area which is quite interesting um, and the first people who did it back sort of October November sort of struggled a bit. Quite a few of the Scots guys in Edinburgh uh, did it because there was an office in Edinburgh where to process it, and it sort of became a bit easier during the next few
0: months. That's also good to hear. That there's always some fixes. Got one, one more uh, question for you. You know, you've, you're so well connected and so well informed about Latania, and you're always constantly updating the uh, blog. You know, do you have friends who work for the for the Mary? How do you how do you get your uh, source of information?
3: I think i think it's just generally you know a lot of the, the sha companies just pick up information or Tim's on the sort of the council committees and goes to a lot of the planning meetings to the tourist office to get quite a bit of information from him i think it's just sometimes you know they for instance i think uh one of the chalet companies got got the three valley lift prices yesterday um so that and so immediately i was like oh great that's like you know next bit of news i need to put up there but uh you know it's nowhere online yet except except on the talking about the UK i think
0: yeah well constant exclusives that's what you're going to get on uh latania.co.uk i'll put a link in the show notes but as i say you know you search for latania and you'll come across it that's brilliant toffer thanks very much for sharing that with us right i'm just going to drop in a short uh interview now that uh i did with arnie wilson i'm pretty sure uh most people on the panel and certainly uh, a lot of our listeners will know arnie he's a very well-respected veteran ski journalist who's been working in the industry for many years and he is such an interesting and knowledgeable man. He is best known for his exploits in 1994 when he skied every day for a year. And that was written up in the book, Ski the World, uh, which featured in Ski Book Group back in episode 20. I had the opportunity to talk to him recently. Uh, I'm going to publish the full interview as a bonus episode next week. But here's a couple of snippets of our chat now. You started off your career before you became a ski journalist as more of a, a broader journalist, a more traditional journalist working in the uh, in the industry, is that right?
5: Yeah, I, I worked in Fleet Street interviewing celebrities. Skiing didn't come into it really at all, although later on of course when I was in the skiing industry I, I did meet, I had I had lunch with Clint Eastwood, skied with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask you uh, about those, but in those early celebrities then, who, who were you interviewing then?
5: Oh gosh, 200 famous people. And in those days, I don't want to brag, but they really were famous. I had breakfast with Buzz Aldrin, Wow! wonderful wonderful guy. So many of them, I'd have to refer to a list. Lunch with David Bowie. Wow,
0: a lot of people would be extremely <laughs> envious of you for that. These are writing profiles or features for yeah. different newspapers, was they it? They
5: could even be little scrappy bits. I mean, after the Round the World trip, because I'd had lunch with Clint Eastwood en route, he very sweetly, as you can see on the front of the cover, Yep. Agreed to write the intro. Of course, it makes it much more interesting to people and more bona fide. And what was quite funny about that was, he I said, can we? Could you send us your signature? And he popped his signature in a box, put the box in a larger box, put the <laughs> put the larger box in a parcel. Uh-huh. So when it arrived, uh, it was it was triple wrapped, and that's the that's the signature in the book. And what about the
0: actual ski the world, the round the world ski expedition then? Did did you pitch that to
5: the Financial Times? Did you say to
0: them, oh, this will be a really good idea? Well,
5: I'd only been (laughs) writing for them for 10 years or so, roughly that. And I said, I want to do something different, even if you're not interested. I think what it was, I wrote a magazine article. Could you ski somewhere every month of the year? Okay. Yeah. So I made half of it up because I knew you could, but I never had. And then I thought, well, hang on a sec. I've just proved that you could ski every month of the year. So why not every day?
0: On a day, for example, when you were about to fly from Chile to uh, New Zealand, you were up really early in the morning skiing somewhere else. And I think, from my memory of the book, wasn't there one day where you kind of pulled over to the side of the road to find yes. like a patch of snow oh, yeah, yeah. just to get we some were, skiing in? We
5: were skiing along the pavement in parts of Chile. It happened to, that we were in Chile when there was nowhere else to ski. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. I forget must have been when the resorts were closing. Yeah,
0: I think August is uh, I've got down here. July, August,
5: you're yeah. in Chile. So we were, in order to produce one or two or three miles a day, yeah. we would ski down Martin Pass and we'd ski on the pavement because it's still snow. <laughs> yeah,
0: of course, yeah. It's still skiing, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Mammoth oh. was almost your kind of hub, wasn't it, for That's the trip? quite an
5: important point. <laughs> Mammoth was a terrifically useful place to ski in between the northern and southern hemisphere. We became friendly with the people in Mammoth. They would take us, for example, in Mammoth. Uh, it was it was our link between, as I say, between the states or no, between Europe yeah. and the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and so, I remember certainly that in Mammoth they allowed us up the mountain during the night. Because we had, Brilliant. We had a flight the next morning from Los Angeles. Would that be at yeah, Los Angeles at about nine thirty? And so the only way we could catch that would be to ski at six in the morning. Do one run, maybe, yeah. and then we'd go to the airport. So yes, we had. But Mammoth did become very important to us as a as a great sort of link between the two hemispheres. We were asked to go to India. The right. Indian government heard. We huh? were, ne- we were never, That's brilliant. <laughs> well, it was. It could have been a disaster because if we had not, if we'd failed one day, yes, while chancing our luck in India, it would have ruined the whole year. We thought, do we say yes or no? But anyway, they asked us, and we went to Manali. Uh, in the Himalayas.
0: Yeah, I've been there actually, you Manali. Really? Yeah. Did
5: you ever ski there? No. <laughs> well, there's heli skiing there, which is yeah. the, probably the best heli skiing yeah. in the world. Which I've yeah. done since the trip, done two or three trips there. Uh, but Manali was a bit of a um, we just about managed because the thing is there were no ski resorts open. We, we discovered when we got there. So what we did, we got special government permit, and we drove with uh, help from the local I don't know tourist office, I suppose. Yeah up the pass and then we skied down all kinds of weird it wasn't a ski resort at all we were skiing down it wasn't that dangerous but it was it was sort of loose snow ice rivers and and then of course then we went when we skied down we had to try and find our driver again (laughs) i've got some pictures at home of getting into the area great big cliffs and walls of ice and you think god what are you doing there Uh, it seemed like it might have been a mistake, but we managed to ski every day. But we skied so little in India that we ended up owing the total, if you like, another 30 or 40 I miles I see, and you had to catch to up. Make up. We were sitting like we are here at the table, and he was at the next table. And I'd actually said, Wouldn't it be fun if we met Clint? And there he was. <laughs> so we moved, he seemed to be quite welcoming. Uh, we said what we were doing and we moved across to his table and had lunch with him and brilliant It was very nice
0: great so i'm going to move on to uh, al now now you were out in kutai on the ski test i think back in march wasn't it and in That's the right. green room and part of our conversations early you told me that you'd, you'd like to expand a little bit on a couple of uh, pairs of skis that really stood out for you and i think the first one you mentioned was the uh, is it the vocal deacon is that what it is do you want to tell us a bit more about that
2: yeah so you know what it is you go to these things you go to ski tests and you get on loads of different products they're really privileged position it's fantastic but certain bits of kit just gets you really frothing really excited about just skiing like like dan said before just the excitement for being on the snow and certain bits of kit just light you up and this ski is it's a completely new ski for winter 2022-23 the Volkal Deacon seventy-two. Now, just going back a bit, probably to about two thousand eight, Volkal brought, brought out a ski called the Code, and it was a pure performance piece ski, but it had a rocker front and back, quite revolutionary at the time. Now, they have a whole family of Deacon skis for peace skiing and for all mountain. And the winter we just had, they had a ski called the Master seventy-two. But for next year, they're bringing out the Volkal Deacon seventy-two. Loads of numbers and names there. But this is a pretty special ski. It's quite expensive, 840 pounds, but it's got loads of modern tech in it. You do get a pretty nice binding in that. But yes, we appreciate that. That is the upper end. But it makes you way more than 800 pounds a better skier. It is phenomenal.
0: If I buy this ski for 840 pounds, it's going to make me more than 800 pounds better as a skier.
2: (laughs) Honestly, it is it is just incredible. It's a bit like they've got alchemists working at Volkl and they just turn something magical in this ski. It's, it's brilliant. So, it's a multi layer wood core, poplar and ash, quite a long lift front and back. It's quite a low rocker, but quite long, big, beefy sidewall, two layers of metal, and they've got 3D glass. So, in skis, you have different flat layers, laminates but they get more technical with this in that the, the, the glass laminate in the ski isn't just a flat layer, it comes up in the 3D profile, up and out over the edges in the tip and tail, and then combine that with their new tech, this tailored carbon tip, so they have certain carbon strands that they embroider onto a mesh back and that's laminated in the tip of the ski. And the grip out of this is phenomenal. You know, I'm really lucky. I get to ski race skis and all sorts of stuff. There was a really hard packed piece. And I was trying to go really fast on a number of different piece skis. And I put this on my feet. And my word, it was electric. You just want to go faster and harder. And you weren't in any doubt that it was going to lose grip there and it was really interesting so there's a, a lady called Anja Blenninger who's an ex-German racer she's Volkl's international product manager she was out there and um, I was talking to her about the ski afterwards and it's just really amazing watching somebody that works in it getting so excited about a product it is just brilliant I'd, even people from different brands other ski brands got in there on this ski and were blown away it's awesome
5: I don't think
0: I've ever heard a more positive review of a ski uh, than that. I'm definitely going to have to look out for it. You know, I think you uh, listeners probably know I normally, I don't own skis, but I tend to hire them from uh, Intersport. I'll have to mention to Intersport to make sure they get that in their uh, quiver for next winter. Uh, and then the other one was a Salomon ski, right?
2: Yeah, this is, um, I'm not going to try and get too over the top because these are just, that Volcal me 72 and this Salomon QST are just Electric skis. It's a very different product. It's wider, it's 106 underfoot. So, just setting the scene a little bit, QST range from Salomon has been in their offering for a number of years. Great product. They brought out a kind of updated or new construction in a model called the QST Blank, as well as a QST 98. It used to be the 99 for the season we've just had. But the updated this 106, it's an unchanged name, but this ski has changed for next winter. So the contact point in the shovel of the ski is brought further back. they put more cork in the ski. They use something called CFX fiber in the ski, so for dampening without chucking loads of metal in the ski, so it keeps it really light. And I'm gonna wax lyrical about it again. This is just a fantastic, if you want an all mountain free ride style ski for somebody who's maybe an advanced to expert level skier, got a decent amount of technique, It is just brilliant. The grip on piece, they have this this, this kind of double sidewall construction underfoot, they call it dual sidewall, where they've got more sidewall bonded into the the, the core of the ski. And the grip on firm snow, it was a real surprise for something that's over 100 mil underfoot. Um, Obviously, it's got a slightly longer turn radius on this. It's got a 21 meter turn radius. We were skiing it in the 181 length but you can get it over on its edge. You can put pressure into it. The real beauty in this ski is just its versatility. It's been a long time since we've got on something this wide that can cope with such a variety of conditions in skiing. So if you want a wider ski, but you don't want to sacrifice that firm snow performance, you might want to do some tighter turns. You might want to ski at really high speed. The QST 106 is just, superb
0: cool well those are two really effusive reviews there thanks for that uh al and i think it's quite good we've we've got these exclusives here because these will all come out in the uh, magazines uh in the autumn but listener you now know vocal the vocal deacon 72 and the salomon qst 106 to the uh, standout skis from the ski test in kutai back in march excellent well we're moving towards a close now now i enjoy all feedback about the show even if it is about uh, some error. So please let me know about that. Leave your reviews and comments uh, wherever it works for you. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, social media, email. Uh, Alex Crump, uh, he said he really enjoyed listening to the Mayor of Desout and his plan for a green future. I think it was two episodes ago. Uh, Mark Thomason, he saw my UTMB uh, cap when I was uh, um, out in Chamonix uh, last week. So good spot there, Mark. Thanks very much. Don't forget... There are 146 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up on. Uh, we had 93 of them listened to in the last seven days. So lots of people are doing uh, going through the back catalogue. I've also got a whole load more of stickers uh, in stock. So if you would like a uh, ski, set of Ski Podcast stickers, uh, then just contact me, podcast at gmail.com. Now, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the ski podcast but for now i'd like to thank switzerland tourism for supporting the show and thank my guest today diane
1: pleasure lovely seeing you ian can't wait for the next one
0: excellent toffer yes thanks very much ian and al
2: ian always a pleasure thank you
0: and finally listener thank you for joining us and until next time goodbye Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code Podcast, or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.